Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hear now God's Word. The former account I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which He was taken up, after, uh, after He, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom He had chosen, to whom He also presented Himself alive after His suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. On April the 4th, 2021, I began a series of sermons uh, titled, Jesus After the Resurrection. And the first sermon was from Luke, the last chapter of Luke's gospel, Luke 24, and it was titled, They Remembered His Words. This series continued from the last chapter of Luke into the book of Acts, uh, which is really volume two of Luke's. Luke wrote both his gospel and then the book of Acts. And I preached the 39th sermon from Acts chapter 18. Well, actually not 39 chapters, 39 sermons from Acts 18, but up to Acts 18. Um, on October the 23rd, last October, uh, 2022, and that is where we left off uh, as we entered into Advent and Easter and so forth. And now we're coming back. We're going to try to finish up here. This is Pentecost Sunday, which ends the Easter season. And so again, we hope to finish up now these last 10 chapters of the book of Acts. Now, in order to set the table for this, I'm going to attempt something I have never done before in a sermon, and that should make you nervous. Uh, which is to give an abstract of the last chapter of Luke's Gospel and the first 18 chapters of Acts. Yes, saw those faces. An abstract is a term that simply means a brief summary. Over the years of our marriage, Marinelle has often tried new recipes on our family many times, and oftentimes they are great, but not always. And so uh, I'm warning you, um, I'm trying something new. You can let me know later whether you ever want me to do that again. So uh, I ask for your prayers, but I might also need your mercy before it's over. So we're going to go for a fast ride, and I hope to point out a few themes in these chapters of the Bible. And here are some of the themes that I want you to pay attention to. The gospel is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. That's what Jesus taught his disciples, and that's what we're going to see being demonstrated throughout the book of Acts. Second, the church is now acting on behalf of Jesus as his witnesses. Now, there are false witnesses against Jesus and the church, as we'll see. But we are his true witnesses. We represent him. We are the body of Christ. He is in heaven. He is on his throne directing us, if you will. And we now, as his body, continue his ministry, his work. Third, I want you to notice in this the mixed response to the gospel. We see people embracing the gospel, becoming believers, and then we see hostile reactions to the gospel. The same message. 
And then ultimately, I want you to see the universal scope of the gospel. And by universal, I mean that it's for all nations. This is what's going to really open up on the day of Pentecost. And so, here we go. Luke 24, last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. I'm, I'm going to be, by the way, we're going to be reading and hearing a lot of Scripture today. And then I'm just going to make comments as we go. So I'm going to be pulling out what I think are the key things from each of these chapters to weave together this story and these themes. Jesus said to them, remember he's on the road, uh, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, after the resurrection, they think Jesus has died, and they're talking to one another, and this stranger appears, that turns out to be Jesus, and he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning, here's this is what Jesus is doing on this road trip with these two disciples, beginning at Moses, first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He then said to them, same chapter, Verses 44 and 45. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. In other words, this wasn't something brand new. He, he had been doing this. They apparently just hadn't gotten the point. That all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he says in verse 48, and you are witnesses of these things. You're going to bear testimony of these things. That's what a witness does. You're going to be telling other people what I'm telling you. And so this sets the table now at the end of Luke, after the resurrection, for what's going to now happen in Acts chapter 1. And so we have Jesus here in the opening of Acts and we're told in, in Acts 1, it opens by telling us that Jesus had presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I, I really think Jesus had basically a 40-day seminar on the Old Testament, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, showing them what God had been doing from the very beginning. He is opening their understanding. So he has 40 days to do this. And having taught them, Jesus then tells them in chapter 1, verse 8, I think this, if I had to pick one verse out of the book of Acts, that's kind of the hitching post for all the book of Acts, it would be this one. And he says to the disciples who have assembled, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. And then he, he, he paints this geographic picture, first in Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is how this is going to unfold. And so there will be an ever-widening circle, which, which continues, by the way, to this day, and so the resurrection was like a giant meteor that landed in the ocean. 
And now what's about to happen is the resulting tsunami that is going to overtake the world. The gospel and the church will be that tsunami that follows. Now Jesus ascends to his throne and then Peter immediately in chapter 1 speaks to the roughly 120 disciples, verses 16 and 17, and he cites David from Psalm 41, verse 9, regarding Judas. How are we going to understand Judas? Well, we've got to go back to the Old Testament, and he cites Psalm 41, 9, and then he quotes again from Psalm 69, 25, and again from Psalm 109, verse 8. Where did Peter learn that? I think that's what Jesus showed him. Now Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Here in Jerusalem. Remember, we're going to start in Jerusalem. And so the apostles and the church is the body of Christ, directed by Jesus, are going to represent him to the world. And so we began in verse 5, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. The Jews had come for Passover from all over, different countries, and have now assembled in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the other parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. That's a pretty, pretty long table of nations represented here, right? And we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, It's a good question. What does this mean? This is the reversal of the curse that was put on the Tower of Babel when God confused the languages of those who were trying to be their own God. And now, and now the gospel is going to all the nations. They are hearing it in their own language. In his sermon to the crowd, which had gathered for Pentecost in Jerusalem, Peter quotes... Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, and again, Psalm 16, 8 through 11, which he applies to what they have just witnessed with the outpouring of the Spirit. He proceeds to show that Jesus was the son of David and that David called him Lord. He quotes Psalm 68, 18, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, which is, by the way, a universal claim of the kingship of Jesus over all the nations. And when they ask, what shall we do? At the end of Peter's sermon, he concludes by referring to something they would have been very familiar with in verse 39, and that is the promise that God made to Abraham. He says, for the promise, the promise, the one you're familiar with, the promise is to you and to your children and to all any and, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God should call. That's the Gentiles. Remember, God promised Abraham, I want to be your God, I want to be a God to your children and to your children's children, 
and through your seed, through your children, a blessing to all the nations. This is what's happening on the day of Pentecost. God, remember the Bible says Abraham saw Christ's day and rejoiced. Why was he rejoicing? Because this is the fulfillment of what God had promised Abraham, the promise that Abraham believed and God counted it as righteousness. Like I said this morning in Sunday school, Abraham was a Christian. Acts chapter 3, Peter heals the lame man outside the temple gate. This is a big event. Remember, this man has been lame all his life. He's there every day at the temple. Everybody's seen this guy. It's not like he'd been there two weeks. He'd been there year after year after year, begging for alms. And in verse 18, Peter says, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And then at the end of chapter 3, Peter Uh, then cites Moses as having prophesied about Christ being the ultimate prophet, and he says this. And remember I said, Moses was a Christian. Because Moses said, all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, also have foretold of these days. This is the, the crescendo of the Old Testament. Everything has been pointing to Christ, and now Christ has risen And now the church, the body of Christ, is about to be unleashed on the world, or is being unleashed. And he cites again the Abrahamic promise in verse 25. You are sons of the prophets, these are Jews, and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So again, the gospel is intended for every nation, and that is what's unfolding in Acts. And by the way, that's what's still unfolding today. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested. Remember, we're going to have different responses to the gospel. And so the high priest and others demanded to know in verse 7, by what power or by what name have you done this? These miracles. Remember, he just raised the, the lame man up in the temple. And Peter tells them that he speaks in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then he quotes Psalm 118.22. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And after being released and returned to the church, the people quote from Exodus 20.11 and Psalm 2, 1 and 2. We give a lot of attention to Psalm 2. And here's what they said. By the mouth of your servant David have said... Why did the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So this this beginning of a persecution and negative reaction to the gospel, they're remembering Psalm 2. God, yes, God told us that these rulers are, are going to reject this and not like this and be trying to break the bonds of God And again, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word with boldness. Verse 31, we're going to see this theme. How how do you know that you have the Holy Spirit? How do you know the Holy Spirit's at work is because we give witness. God, we're animated, we're moved. Dead people don't talk. But if you were raised from the dead physically, just like Lazarus, you're not going to go sit in the corner and be quiet. You're going to be telling folks what happened. 
Chapter 5, arrested again, and then busted out of prison. We're going to see this. looks like people are going to try to shut down the gospel, and every time they do, it's going to backfire. So they're teaching in the temple, chapter 5, verse 25, and they notice it says, they fill Jerusalem with their doctrine. Verse 32, we are his witnesses. And so what happens when they witness? They beat them and warn them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And then we read in verse 42, shouldn't that shut them down? Aren't they afraid of the political powers that be? They've been arrested, they've been beaten, they've been warned. Verse 42, and daily in the temple... And in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. We see this pattern of mixed responses to the gospel, again, either received or hostile. But the gospel cannot spread without stirring the pot because the darkness hates the light. They're not neutral. Acts 6, the word spreads. Even in the face of hostile responses, we keep on reading things like verse 7. Then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. You would think if there's a persecution that unbelievers wouldn't even want to hear about this. They would be running the other way. But the exact opposite is happening. Stephen then preached and performed miracles. And what do you think happened? He was arrested. So Stephen wasn't just some kook on the sidewalk in a sandwich board, which everyone ignored. The word of God is powerful, and wherever it goes, it demands a response. Chapter 7, we have Stephen's trial and Stephen's defense. This is a long chapter. It's 60 verses. At his defense, he starts where? With Abraham in the book of Genesis. And the promise and the covenant. So Stephen is a powerful witness here. And then he moves to Jacob and Joseph and then to Moses. And he quotes from Exodus 2. And then Aaron and then the prophets. And quoting Jeremiah 25. This is followed by quotes from Isaiah 66 and from Psalm 102. Well, they didn't think very much of Stephen's preaching. And so they killed him. Verse 59, and he became the first Christian martyr. That ought to shut him up, right? That ought to put a damper on this. Here's what happens when you speak up. We'll shut you down. And so chapter 8 begins the open persecution of the church. So by this point, it's clear that Jesus and the church have become a real threat to the powers that be. If you're not a threat, they just ignore you. And unfortunately, that describes much of the American church today. We're ignored because we're no threat whatsoever. We should remember the words of Jesus to his disciples at this point in John chapter 15. He had warned them about this. 18 through 20, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. 
And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. As a result of the persecution, the believers were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Remember what Jesus said in Acts 1.8? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Well, guess what? God's going to take this, what appears to be negative, the persecution of his church, and he's going to use it to disperse his people in these other places. So every time, again, God's enemies try to silence him, it backfires. You know how many times leaders, uh, national leaders, kings, rulers, emperors, have tried to snuff out the church? Where are they? And where is the church? Verse 3, chapter 8, says, Saul made havoc of the church. He was on a crusade, a mission. Stamp it out. And then we read in verse 4, Therefore those were, the, those were scattered and went everywhere preaching the word. Next we see Philip, the evangelist, a witness, and he overhears the Ethiopian eunuch who was in a chariot, and he was reading... The Old Testament, he was reading from Isaiah chapter 53, particularly verses 7 and 8. And we are drawn back to remember that in the Old Testament, the queen of Ethiopia had known Solomon and visited Solomon, and it seems apparent that she had taken the Old Testament back with her to Ethiopia, and many of her people had copies of the scriptures and had heard of it. So here's the Ethiopian eunuch reading the Bible, and then Philip opened his mouth. Uh, He asked him, do you know what you're reading? And he said, I need somebody to teach me. And so Philip opened his mouth and began, beginning at this scripture, Isaiah 53, preached Jesus to him. And from here, Philip's going to move on to preach in Caesarea. Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul. We know that Saul was a Pharisee. And therefore, he was an Old Testament scholar, and like many of the Jewish leaders, he had simply missed the point. He was leading the persecution, not only of the church, but literally of Jesus himself, because when Jesus speaks to him on the road to Damascus, he doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because if you're persecuting the church, you are persecuting me. And this will be the key turning point that will ultimately take the gospel to the Gentile nations as God had promised Abraham. And so after Saul on the road to Damascus spends some time with the disciples, verse 19 of chapter 9, we read, quote, Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God, verse 20, and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ, verse 22. And then we read in verse 29, And he spoke boldly, that is, he witnessed in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, or the Greeks, about the attempt, uh, but they attempted to kill him. That was their response to his message. How could anyone have a genuine encounter with the Son of God and not speak about it to others? 
Acts 10, Peter's vision. So here Peter has a vision wherein he is called to eat unclean animals, which of course is prohibited in the Old Testament. But Jesus tells him some things have changed in this new era. And we must remember that God always had as part of his plan of salvation that the gospel was going to go to all the nations. This is not a this is not an addendum. This isn't, oh, I tried to save the Jews and that didn't work out, so we're going to have a parenthesis called the church, church age, and I'm going to set the Jews aside. We'll get to them at the end of history, and now I'm going to deal with the Gentiles separately. No, the whole Old Testament is clear. It's full of God's intention to be a blessing to the nations, for his salvation to come to the nations. So after this vision where God tells him to eat these unclean animals, the next thing happens is Gentile, the Gentile Cornelius shows up on Peter's doorstep in verse 21, chapter 10. And Peter said in verses 34 and 35, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Verse 39, and we are witnesses of all things which he, that is, Jesus did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed and hanged on a tree. And referring to Jesus, Peter said to Cornelius and to the others that were gathered with Cornelius in verse 43, to him, that is, to Jesus, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. That was the message of the prophets. Acts 11 recounts Peter's vision and events surrounding the conversion of Cornelius. When he returns to Jerusalem, he meets with the other Jewish Christian leaders there in the church, and he tells them what's happened. And in verse 18, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, quote, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And so the gospel has now reached as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, verse 19. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, verse 26. So this tsunami is rapidly expanding, thousands upon thousands. Chapter 12, you can guess what happens when the church's influence is growing. The threat grows. So Herod is now going to harass the church. He kills James. And a lot of people like that, so he said, well, I'll do it again. He arrests Peter. Verse 7 of chapter 12, Now behold, the angel of the Lord stood by him, that is Peter, in prison, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. So God is supernaturally intervening in what seems to be a hopeless situation. There's no way Peter's going to get out of this. No way the gospel is going to keep moving forward. But God, in his providence, sends a messenger, an angel, and he delivers Peter out of this. And so what Peter does is he heads straight to the assembly, to the assembled and praying church. He knew where they were meeting. Herod is angry. 
And when he, he discovers Peter's gone the next day, and the next thing he does is have his own guards executed. Then Herod gives an oration to a large crowd of people, and the people kept shouting, verse 22, the voice of a God, not of a man. And because Herod did not give the glory to God, the next thing we know, in verse 23, worms are having him for dinner. Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Psalm 2. The Psalm 2 theme keeps showing up. The light dispels the darkness. Now this is followed by verse 24. Peter's in prison. Peter's busted out. Herod's now eaten by worms. Verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Chapter 13, the first missionary journey. Barnabas, Saul, and John Mark are set apart by the church. They're sent to Seleucia and Cyprus as missionaries, as witnesses, evangelists, if you will. And on their way at Patmos, uh, Paphos, excuse me, they encounter the famous Elymas, the sorcerer who opposes Paul and Barnabas, And he bears false witness against them. And, of course, again, we see many false witnesses that even began with Jesus about the resurrection and all kinds of other things. And what happens to him? He's going to lead the opposition against Paul and Barnabas. Verse 12, he ends up being struck blind. And as a result, the proconsul, the judge, if you will, in the case, becomes a believer. Next, they go to Perga and Pamphylia and finally to Antioch. And after the public reading of the law, remember the first thing Paul would always do is go to the synagogue. Remember, he's a Pharisee. He goes to the synagogue. There's always a place there. And after the public reading of the law and the prophets in the synagogue, Paul stands up, which was a custom that people could do, and he expounds on the Old Testament and in fact, I didn't realize this till I was working on this sermon and I got to chapter 13, that Paul is actually doing what I'm doing this morning, and that is giving an abstract. It's just that he's doing the whole Old Testament. So, so you're getting off light. So, for example, um, he stands, he expounds the Old Testament, and he concludes by saying he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man, seed, David's seed, David's descendants, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Again, the Jews had missed the point of the Old Testament. In verse 27, for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Verse 29, and now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Paul then says, In verse 32, and we declare to you glad tidings, or the gospel, that promise which was made to you from the fathers, the Old Testament, and then he quotes from Psalm 2 again, verse 7, 
You are my son, today I have begotten you. He also quotes from Isaiah 55.3, Psalm 16.10, and finishes with a warning from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, which says, Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. And then we read in verse 44, on the next Sabbath, this is, again, you imagine the stir here, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Many of the Jews opposed Paul, and so he said he would, he's going to now turn to the Gentiles, verse 46, and then he quotes Isaiah 49, 6, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Chapter 14, Iconium. After Paul and Barnabas preached at the synagogue in Iconium, we read in verses 4 through 7, but the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles, and when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse them and stone them, They became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. So the opposition is driving the success of the gospel just as the crucifixion had done. Rome thought they were putting an end to Jesus. Boy, did they get it wrong. At Lystra, Paul heals a lame man, as Peter had done in the temple. And the crowd said, this is a pagan town, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they call Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, uh, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But Paul and Barnabas, of course, refused their worship. And they said this, men... Why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that in them is, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. In other words, all nations are accountable to the one true and living God and This is now, because the gospel's going forth, there's a new accountability. What happens? More opposition, more persecutions. Then Jews from Antioch, uh, verses 19 and 20, then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However... (laughs) When the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe, like Jesus rose from the dead. Then they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, reminding the church, quote, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Acts 15, conference at Jerusalem, Controversy over circumcision, whether the Gentiles had to be circumcised. But essentially, baptism has now replaced circumcision. So it was fine for Jews to continue circumcision, part of their tradition. 
but they could not impose it on the Gentile Christians. James settles the dispute, how? By appealing to the words of the prophet Amos 9, 11-12, which say, After this I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I'll raise it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. And so the Jewish and Gentile believers are officially brought together. Verse, uh, chapter 16 is the second missionary journey. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, these men try to go east, but they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul has his Macedonian vision in verse 9, which was a call for help. And what we see is Jesus providentially from heaven directing traffic, if you will, directing where to go next and who to speak to. And so they spoke to a group of women who just happened to have gathered on the riverside for prayer, and that's where they met Lydia. And the the Bible in verse 14 says the Lord opened her heart. And then the next thing we read in verse 15 is that Lydia and her whole household was baptized. That's another pattern we will see. For example, we see it in this same chapter, very next event. Paul and Silas again are arrested. As a result, and as a result, God is going to open more than one door. First he opens the door of the jail, verse 26, and then he opens the heart of the Philippian jailer, verse 26. And then in verses 31 through 33, the jailer's entire household was baptized that hour. Chapter 17, Thessalonica and Athens at the synagogue in Thessalonica, Paul, quote, on three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Verses 2 and 3. Some accuse them of turning the world upside down. Again, they're a big threat. And so Paul and Silas fled to Berea, and as usual, they headed for the synagogue, And this is where we read that famous passage, the Bereans were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness, and they searched the Scriptures, the Old Testament, daily to find out whether the things Paul and Silas were telling them uh, were true. Of course, this also stirred up more trouble, so the brethren sent Paul to Athens, where he waited for Silas and Timothy. And we read in verse 16, of Acts 17, now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. He wanted Athens to be a Christian city. Paul resolved to reason with the Jews and the Gentiles in the synagogue, verse 17. Then he just moved to the marketplace, open-air market. And he he spoke with whoever happened to be there, and some folks overhear him. They bring him to the Areopagus, and that's where God then opens up an unexpected opportunity. Paul didn't know this was going to happen when he got up that morning. And so verse 22, he addresses the leading men of Athens. And then in verse 27, he calls men and nations to seek and worship the true God through the resurrected Jesus. And he he says in verses 30 and 31, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. 
because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Some mocked. Some said we'd like to hear more. In verse 34, some believed. And finally, chapter 18. Corinth and Ephesus. Again, they spoke and reasoned in the synagogue to the Jew first, and after being cast out, they went to the Gentiles. In fact, it's interesting, they set up right next door to the synagogue in the home of a God-fearing man named Justice. Verse 7, Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, believed. That's what we're told next. It's here where Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila. And he goes to, then he goes to Ephesus and he meets Apollos, who is described as an eloquent man, mighty in the Scriptures. That would be the Old Testament. And after receiving some additional instruction from Priscilla and Aquila, verse 26, Apollos went to Achaia, where he helped, a man, helped the brethren and, quote, vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures, from the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Christ. This is where we left off last October, and we will continue to see where else this story of the gospel conquest goes in the book of Acts. And we know that this gospel story continues into this very room. So the book of Acts is a continuation of the gospel of Luke, describing Jesus' followers as they are given the power of God's spirit and tasked with spreading the good news of God's kingdom to the ancient world. This is the beginning of the international church, and it's here that we see the Holy Spirit breathing life into this new body. Genesis 2-7, think about this. And the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. In Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, you ask Ezekiel, can these bones live? He says, Lord, you know. He says, speak to the bones. And then he says, speak to the wind. And that represents the Holy Spirit. Spirit comes and these dead bones come together and rise up an exceedingly great army of the Lord. In John 20, 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them, the disciples, and, and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, 8, we already quoted, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were with all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and one sat upon each of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongue. As the Spirit gave them utterance, what were they speaking? The gospel. They weren't just chattering. When the Spirit comes, it emboldens us, it gives us power to speak. We still have that same Spirit in us. God has given that to us. We are a living body. We are the continuation of this story in the book of Acts. Let's pray. Father, we begin by thanking you for all your good gifts, but especially today we thank you for sending the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, to not only comfort and lead us into all truth, 
but also to fill us and send us out as witnesses for Christ and his gospel. Stir us from our complacency and encourage us in our fears that we might hear and feel the mighty wind of the Spirit and experience the flaming power of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. So the seventh angel blew the seventh trumpet, and the significance of this trumpet blast is declared in heaven with loud voices. So the seventh trumpet indicates the formal establishment of Daniel's fifth kingdom, the rock that struck Nebuchadnezzar's great statue on the feet and which then grew to become a mountain that filled the entire earth. This is a picture of Christ and his kingdom. So in Daniel, we read, in verse 13, Daniel, uh, we read, I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, And him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which will not be destroyed. So the seventh trumpet indicates the formal inauguration of Christ's reign on earth, and for this heavenly kingdom to have an earthly reality made manifest, uh, something great had to happen first. And that brings us to Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had to be poured out on the church. He was, as he was on the day of Pentecost, so that we, the church, could do the work of the kingdom in the power and authority of Christ. Amen. O Lord, let the Spirit you sent on your church on the day of Pentecost to begin the spreading of the gospel continue to work in the world through your covenant people. Send your Spirit into our lives to loosen our tongues, to speak and sing your praises. For without the Holy Spirit, man could never raise his voice to announce the truth that Jesus is Lord. Send us into the world to announce the good news that you have made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and have determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for you and find you, though you are not far from each one of us. For in you we live and move and have our being. Amen. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, always, even to the end of the age. Amen.